welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay. All right, we're starting out with Tradition 8. And um, on the short form, on page 562 of the big book, it says, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. And in the long form, it has Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. We define professionalism as the occupation of counseling alcoholics for fees or higher. But we may employ alcoholics where they are going to perform those services for which we might otherwise have to engage non-alcoholics. Such special services may well be recompensed. But our usual AA 12-step work is never to be paid for. Okay, and I believe that stands the same in uh, the other fellowships, too. And then we're going to go to the 12 and 12, page 166. And we'll start in there. Um As a matter of fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to switch over to A Comes of Age and start there. I'm going to start with page uh, 114 in uh, A Comes of Age. This was a powerful tradition that was, I think Bill was one of the first ones caught up on on this. And uh, when he was going to work for uh, Pounds, and uh, that told that he couldn't do it. But in the start of it here on page 114, it says, Alcoholics Anonymous will never have a professional therapeutic class. We have gained some understanding of the ancient words. Freely you have received, freely give. For our purpose, we have discovered that at the point of professionalism, money and spirituality do not mix. We do not decry professionalism in other fields, but we accept the sober fact that it does not work for us. Every time we have tried to professionalize our 12 steps, the result has been exactly the same. Our single purpose has been defeated. And um, then he says, Bill says, you remember how I was told by the AA's group conscience that I could not work for Charlie Towns as a professional therapist, and that was right. Early in the game, we discovered that under no conditions should an AA be paid for taking or carrying this message to somebody else, person to person and face to face. That was out. If professionalism ever invaded us at, at that level, we were doomed. And down in the next, I'm just going to read a couple here before I make a comment. <clears throat> um, in the next one down, this problem arose uh, out of the need for paid workers in our service centers, the need for people who do the jobs that volunteers could not or would not do. Were service workers professionals, were service workers professional or were they not? That was the issue. Then they go down into the next, uh, the last paragraph, the start of it. I like this especially. 
because having been a fireman, <laughs> I just kind of kind of said it for everybody. He said, "Well, we approached old Tom, a fireman. He had recently sprung out of the we had recently sprung out of the Rock Island Asylum. We were shrewd. We already knew that Tom had a pension as a fireman, so we said to him, "How would you like to come over, Tom, and live at the club?" And as the rest goes on, and it's read, they tried to sucker him in and get him to work for nothing. And even when he finally told them that he wouldn't work for nothing, that he they had to pay him, they tried to they tried to bring him down to the bottom dollar that they could pay to to get him to do the stuff. And um, he told him, he says, "No money, no work. Uh, I'm doing my twelve step work for free, but you're going to have, uh, but if you're going to have me here as a janitor, you're going to have to pay me." See. And I think that was a, a great um, move move forward because all of our service workers, I know in AA at the general service office, the people who serve uh, the staff members there that sit on the different chairs uh, and rotate every two years, those people are all alcoholics, but they're paid because they do a professional job. They're not paid to be alcoholics. They're not paid to do 12-step work. And um, I might add that over the years for myself, um, and several of my friends we've watched uh, I really hate watching it but I've watched several people that come into AA and they get just charged with wanting to help people and so they figure the best way the next thing to do is to go uh, get a, a training as a counselor and work in a treatment center and many of them do that and some go on to become professionals and start their own professional counseling service and what I have seen happen quite often and I and I mean really quite often, is that they, what we call they catch a counselor syndrome. And what that is is somebody starts becoming a counselor, a paid professional, um, doing stuff with alcoholics, and the next thing you know, they're not coming to meetings and they're not participating in AA, and they consider what they're doing to be their service work. And it's a professional job. It's And Bill commented way back that it was really tough to wear two hats. And I have personally watched it. I mean, I've seen friends of mine go that way. And they finally just separated from AA. Many of them went back out to drink. Some of them didn't, but they were miserable. And they just considered all their professional uh, work as their AA work. And it's a very uh, easy trap to fall into from what I have watched. Um, so I, I know that this is a really important tradition and it can protect AA from going completely haywire as well as the other fellowships that, that believe in the traditions that if we stay away from this professional class for doing our service work and hiring people to, to carry our message, we're going to, we're going to stay on the track that I believe that God brought us here to, to do. Um, and he says here on page 116, that is where the line finally fell. For face-to-face -face treatment of a drunk, no money ever. But AA does have to hire people so it can function where there are legitimate jobs to be done. Even after AA's Tradition 8 was thus established in principle, it took still more years to work out the applications. There are all sorts of borderline cases always in hot debate. And... There's still, it gets in hot debate. I've, I've watched it just recently, um, last year at a re, at a special forum that there was in, uh, South Dakota. And it got, it got a little heated there because somebody was claiming that their service work as, working in the treatment center was service work. And, 
it really caused some huge ripples for a lot of people. <clears throat> but for me, I know that, and for what the what I have learned from the traditions and from my experience of being in in uh, AA, from what I have watched and witnessed, um, that it, it can be very, very detrimental to our to our fellowship and to our service work. Not that these people aren't well-meaning when they go into it. It's just it's a trap when we start into it. And I am so thankful that AA itself has, um, and the fellowships that follow the traditions, have chosen not to go that route and hire professionals to do the the actual carrying of the message. And, and um, you know, we, we do some things like, we have public service announcements, but we put them on a, on television or on the radio, and we put those together ourselves. But uh, I know that we have to stay out of that. Uh, you, you know, back at the start, many of you remember a lot of the stuff where they started trying to do drunk farms and all that, and there's still a tendency to do that around the fellowship. Uh, certain groups will will uh, start a like a halfway house. And then the people that come in there that need help, uh, they'll put them in that, and then they have them doing stuff for the group, and they have to tow a certain line to uh, to stay in that house. And it's it's a requirement set up by the by the by the group, and I found that to be very detrimental too. Um, I, I know other people who have houses where people can live in for a modest amount, but they don't have requirements set upon them as members of AA. Um, so for me, uh, in, in as Bill C, or in the AA Comes of Age, this, um, the violation uh, in these instances was not professionalism at all. It was breaking anonymity. This is the drunk farms and stuff, uh, uh, making money on, off of AA. And, uh, and our singleness of purpose, our sole purpose, is to help other alcoholics. That's what our 12th tradition says, our 12th step says. That's, that's what we do, is having have a spiritual awakening as the result. And that's what we go out and set out to do. And I know for me, that's uh, I've never been tempted to try to go into um, any kind of professional field uh, doing this. I, I get exactly what it says in the, the vision for you. I knew I had to do it to start with, to stay sober, because that's what they told me. And then later on, this feeling was transcended by a completely different feeling, that of joy of, of being able to give, do this stuff for other people. And uh, it really made a difference in my life. And I thank God for these traditions that have protected AA and thus the, the foundation that so many other fellowships use. It has protected this program uh, from people just like me and Bill W., uh, because, man, I could get in there and mess it up, and I saw it in Bill. He had a couple of really good ideas that didn't work out well. But uh, thank God the people got it through to him and, and kept him from doing it. Okay, on page 166 is where it starts a tradition eight in the 12 and 12, and most of this you'll find that is a lot of the same language that's used in AA Comes of Age. But um, this professionalism, we need, absolutely need in our service centers uh, to have some professionalism. But this is work being done for AA, not 
not for the individual alcoholic. It's to help get the message out there, our printing of our books, you know, handling all of the calls coming in, all of those things. It's not 12-step work itself. And that's that can be easily seen if, if you ever have the opportunity to go there and watch and see what happens there. But um, I know that today the um, um, the amount of work that goes through that office, the amount of the service that is done helping other groups and, and regions and people all over the world is is just um, tremendous compared to what it was back then. And I can't even imagine what those poor people had to face after Jack Alexander's article when it really came flooding in. But um, um, <clears throat> let me look here a second. Yeah, and it's and one of the other things that's very important that uh, that is done, and it's still not it's still not counseling or anything, is they facilitate the letters that go back and forth to prisons, uh, the addresses and contacts for people to write to people in prisons, and for loners and limbs, people who are have limited ability to get out, and for loners who are stuck in faraway places. Uh, we've even had some loners here in Montana stuck way out in the middle of nowhere where they couldn't get to groups or anything, and so they, they made contact through the office and were connected through letters and even phone calls later on. Uh, now we have cell phones and Skype and email and everything. But, Bob? Uh, yeah. Um, I just want to clarify something. I, I'm, uh, I believe you're talking about AAGSO here and not SA Central Office. Is, is that, that oh, been the case? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is AAGSO, the General yeah. Service Office okay. in New York. It is making sure. Uh, I thought so. Okay. Right, because I I would be I would be really in in the wrong field to try to explain to you everything that goes on at Seiko. Um, I I don't have that much knowledge of it. I've been there and I've seen it, and I know the people who work there, but I don't know the the inner workings of it that well. I've only been around here for about a year and a half, not even a year and a half yet. But I'm learning more all the time. But I know that uh, contact is made a lot of times, even with Seiko for the SA. People write, uh, contact uh, Seiko from all over the world, and and then the, the people there uh, send out letters of contact to other people or emails. I've received some myself as a public information chair for the SA, and uh, have written letters to people in foreign countries and all over and helped them find contacts there, too. And that's what the professionals in their offices do. They have to be professional to carry on all this work and, and keep our books and keep our literature and everything else going. Um, but these are the lifelines of, of, of the fellowships, is having somebody somewhere in an office that can handle these things and keep it flowing and keep it happening so that people aren't stranded out there and have no way to contact anybody. There's somebody that knows what they're doing and can send it to the right people to get help for for whatever um, fellowship it is, be it Al-Anon, AA, um, SA, or SNON. Uh, I know a lot of the I, – I know people in many other fellowships, and um, they all have offices where the same thing takes place, and it's done by professionals, but it's not the professional 12-step work. Um 
on uh, page 170 in Tradition 8, the, sec the first full paragraph, it says, we think the answer is, um, <clears throat> well, the question was, and sometimes still is, are such activities to be branded as professional under AA tradition? And that's um, different jobs that are being filled, um, rest homes and stuff, badly, uh, you know, and it says, we think the answer is no. Members who select such full-time careers do not professionalize AA's 12 step. And I'm sure we all know people who work in different facilities that help alcoholics or sexaholics or Alanons or Ethanons or overeaters or, you know, so many other people with uh, suffering from many maladies. People are there to help those people and, it, you know, in these facilities where they receive them. But in these facilities, the ones that I am familiar with, they also allow people from our fellowships to come in there to uh, to talk with them and, and lead book studies and stuff like that. It's not a it's not a shared professionalism from everything I have I have seen. Well, I guess I have seen a couple that kind of border on professionalism, but um, they didn't last long. Um, I am going to move on to there's a pamphlet, the AA group. I found a little ditty in there the other day when I was looking through, making sure I didn't miss anything. And there's a on page 37, it says, well, what AA does not do. And I'm like, so much of what AA does, I know a lot of other fellowships follow from there from what they have learned in AA through their mistakes. And uh, and some of the things that we don't do is recruit members or furnish initial motivation for alcoholics to recover. We don't keep membership records or case histories, uh, which kind of brings to mind a lot of times I'll hear people state what the percentage of success is within Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know where they get their numbers. Because I know that when I was a delegate in New York, we, we went over the uh, the uh, informational thing that's sent out every year to do a kind of a census on AA and about active groups and where people come from and all this. And and um, it never does take a roll call of alcoholics, and it doesn't say how many are successful and who isn't. And, and I know that AA doesn't do this, so I don't know who else might be doing it, but I know... Their their statistics have to be flawed. I mean, they have to be flawed. I know that there's more don't make it than make it. That's just the way it is. But I know that there's no way to put a specific number on it. So anybody who's quoting you statistics, I, I would ask them where they got those numbers because AA doesn't provide them. I know that for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I doubt if any of the others do. You, I can't even imagine what kind of a study that would take to come up with those statistics. Well, Bob, it's known that 92.7% of statistics are made up. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I saw a T-shirt the other day. Is, uh, uh, I can't even remember it now. That's getting old. Um, I always... I always I have, I, I'll give it to you guys another time. I'll write it down the next time I see it. Um, we don't follow or try to control its members, and that's that's the thing that I have seen in AA. Is some groups they they get very dictatorial, they become almost a cult, 
and they do follow and, and keep track of their members. And it's a very sad thing to watch. And uh, I've seen a lot of people uh, suffer from that um, and not make it. And uh, that's something that we have, we as, as a fellowship, and I'm sure the other fellowships are the same, that we choose not to do that. Um, we try not to control our members. We try to provide them with all the opportunities in the world to get well, but we don't try to do that and control them. And another thing is when we take the message into jails and prisons, we don't hand out notes. We don't do anything that could compromise our ability to go in there. Uh, that's right in our workbooks. And we also don't try to uh, drum up uh, new recruits for our group and may try to make our group bigger than other groups. We're carrying the message of, of the fellowship that we represent at that time. Uh, we don't make medical or psychological diagnosis or prognosis, and sometimes we get into that, um, as you probably witnessed yourselves. I know that in AA, we have a lot of people that just because they, they've done a lot of pharmaceuticals, they think they're doctors. And then we have what we call outhouse lawyers. Those are people who have been in trouble with the law a lot of times and therefore believe they know everything about the legal system. And I always tell my the newcomers that I work with, go see a professional a doctor or a lawyer. Don't go with the ones in AA that are trying to tell you how to do things. It could kill you or get you incarcerated. Um, we don't provide hospitalization, drugs, or medical or psychiatric treatment. And we also don't prescribe. Oh, that's a big one. I've seen it many, many places where people tell members, that they can't take any medication whatsoever, and that kills people. We're not we're not doctors. We don't get into that. And the people who say this obviously haven't read the big book in total, because we do recommend that they see professionals. And it, it's a it's a terrible thing. I've known people who have died from it by being told that. Um, we don't provide housing, food, clothing, jobs, money, or other such services. I have occasionally given somebody a couple of bucks. But I watch them pretty close for a while, and then, you know, if they need something to eat or something like that, most of the time I'll take them and get them something to eat. But I, I get, I'm pretty choosy on how I do that, and it's not because I can't afford to do it, because I don't want to, I don't want to harm them by doing that. And I can harm them trying to make myself feel good. Um, domestic or vocational counseling. Boy, oh boy, there's an area that gets really tough. Uh, a lot of people start giving out uh, marriage counseling and and relationship counseling, and and you got to look at who we are. All we can say is what we did and what our experience was. But to try to counsel others on it, we get way way out of our league, and we can cause untold harm. Um, we don't um, engage or sponsor research of any kind. We we shy we shy away from all that. Affiliate with social agencies, though many members and service offices do cooperate with them. We absolutely cooperate with people, but we do not, we do not, uh, do anything that would affiliate us with them, actual or implied. Uh, and it's, it's our business to be there and, and be available to them. In fact, in AA, we had a deal for, for quite a while. It was sponsor your doctor. And it sounds bad, but it, what it was was when you have a physician that you see on a regular basis, let them know that you suffer from, uh, like for AA, you suffer from alcoholism, and that we have literature that we can make available. And if there's anybody ever seems to you that they need that help, uh, feel free to call us. 
there's just things like that that we we do this without affiliating. Um, we don't offer religious services. We don't combine any religion with AA. We keep it all free of that. Engage in any controversy about alcohol or other matters. And there is one place where we can really shoot ourselves in the foot, I believe, with any of our fellowships. As uh, if we start slamming people like in AA, if we start really, really talking bad about people who drink or about people who produce alcohol or anything like that, we can really put ourselves on the outside. Just because we can't do it doesn't mean that other people can't use alcohol and, and, and not cause harm. And we can really cause ourselves, uh, the fellowship, a lot of harm and uh, narrow the, the the possibilities of reaching people who really need it when we sound anti uh, against all of these things. That's very, very important. Um, accept money for its services or contributions from non-AA sources. Right now, there's some debate going on mainly from guys like me about um, the sale of literature and taking the profit from it back when they started it, when Bill started it, as in the concepts it says and the warranties that this money really isn't to be considered um, profit. It's, it's more contributions from the members. Well, that was back when they were first doing that. Now, there's such large orders placed by uh, agencies outside of Alcoholics Anonymous that it's it's causing some of us to have some uh, doubts as to what we're doing there and how we can correct that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and then provide letters of reference to parole boards, attorneys, court officials, school businesses, social agencies, or any other organization or institution. These are things that can cause us to seem like we're professionals, too. And we just don't do that. I have been asked many times to provide a, a, um, a letter of recommendation for somebody or, you know, for somebody who's going to see the judge. And, and I tell them, all I can tell you, the judge, is that I've known you for a certain period of time and I haven't seen you do anything really bad, but I can't vouch for what you do when I, I don't see you. And uh, for me to try to do that as a member of AA would be totally wrong. I just have to do it as an individual, and I have to tell them that I can't lie. I have to tell the truth. And uh, I'll ask a question about that. Sure. Um, well, in Nashville, in AA, we get quite a few people with the nudge from the judge, and they've got their court papers, or they're required to um, have name and initial or phone number for the meetings that they attend. They are sentenced to um, attend like 20 or 30 meetings at various times. Um, is that different than what you just described? Well, actually, yeah, we've had that up here a lot, too. And in other places, it's been fairly big, where they have to have a slip signed and return it to the court. Right. And um, it, it, has, it has diminished quite a bit in the last few years. But when they do that in our... In some of our workbooks, um, cooperating with the professionals and uh, signing in, and it talks specifically about those slips, that we don't do them as a group. We don't do them as AA. We don't sign them. Individuals within the group can sign them if they care to, but that's strictly an individual thing where an individual can say that they saw them there, which... There's other ways to do it described in these in these uh, workbooks uh, for 
um, cooperation with the professional community and carrying the message and uh, and for people coming out of prisons and jails and who have also had DUIs and such, there there's a way to do it without having it, and they can report on themselves, actually. And so what we do is we don't do it as AA. We just don't do that as AA. We don't sign it as... Um, Say the Traditions Group of Billings, Montana doesn't sign it. We don't sign that as an AA. We just do it as an individual. And that keeps it out of that professional realm and, and getting the groups into it. If you'll forgive me, I have another question. I'd like to go backwards. You were talking about groups controlling their members. You cited groups that were somewhat cult-like. Can you give an example of that in action? Oh boy, I can give you, <laughs> I could give you a whole bunch of them. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, some of the things that they do um, that I have witnessed is that people have to um, they're required to show up at certain meetings, and they're required on a specific meeting of the week to be dressed in in a guys are required to be dressed in a jacket and tie, and women are required to be dressed in a in a dress. And um, if they don't happen to have them, they have a room with extra stuff that they have bought different places, and um, and they have them in there so they can take them in there and put them in. The ladies that need a dress, they can give them a dress to put on, or the guys can get a jacket and a tie to wear. They have to do those things. But away from the group, many of them um, have to ask for their sponsor's permission to do anything. Um, I know a guy, uh, specifically a guy, that had a franchise here in Billings, and he was successful at it. He was 10 years sober, and he was running this business, and he had employees, and he was married and had a family. And um, he quit coming to AA, and I didn't see him for quite a while. And then I, I saw him in another town at a conference, and I asked him what happened. And he said, well, I, he said, I don't come to AA anymore. He just got too, too uh, dictatorial. He was 10 years sober, and his television had burned out at home. And uh, when he got home from work, the television was burned out. And as everybody knows, you don't hardly fix those anymore. So he just went to the store and he bought another one and brought it home and set it up for the family. And he got reamed out terribly by his sponsor because he had not asked for permission to buy that television. Now, this is after 10 years sobriety and a successful businessman. And these are this just uh, some of the things. They also uh, were were being sent out. Um, they were coming out here to Huntley, where I live. They were being sent out in twos to go to different groups to cruise those groups for newcomers and see if there was a newcomer showing up. And if nobody was hanging on tight to them, they would try to grab them and drag them back. They were recruiting out there. And they were sent out specifically to do that. There's... Uh, there's certain places that they have to show up and certain things they have to do, and it's it's really cult-like. They, uh, there's, I mean, it's the unbelievable control that they have over some of these people. And, uh, you know, when they go, well, here's another one. When they go to a conference out of town, they drive in a caravan, and it's the senior most members driving the head of the caravan back to the least most in the care, you know, least amount of sobriety. And 
I went up one day after doing a workshop, and I was going to get a bottle of pop out of a machine, and there was a lady standing there, and I stepped back and I said, you first. And she says, no, no, you have more sobriety than I do. Um, and she was taught that she has to wait till the people with more sobriety get served first. I was raised different than that in Montana. And there was, uh, let me see, there was some other some other things. Oh, what was that? Well, they're, they're just, I mean, they have to march in step or they, oh, here's a real classic, that if they don't do what their sponsor says and their sponsor fires them as a sponsee, nobody else in the group can take them up as a sponsee. Everybody shuns them. They can't, they don't talk to them. They don't do anything. They can't, they can't reach out to them at all. They, they can come into the group and they can sit there, but nobody will talk to them or nobody will help them until they go back to their sponsor and ask for forgiveness and try to get sponsored by that sponsor again. I mean, it is, it is very vicious uh, at times in there. I had great difficulty. I had to pray for them a lot. And I've, I know of people who have died because of the way they could not meet the, all the criteria that these people were required to do. And... Um, I know some that just committed suicide because they couldn't do it. They tried AA and that didn't work, so they just committed suicide. And that's the kind of stuff, instead of welcoming people and making them feel welcome in AA and uh, helping them when we can help them and sponsoring them doesn't mean cracking the whip and making them march and step. I've watched some terrible things go on uh, in this, and it's, and it's not just in Billings. It stretches out all over the United States and into some other countries. And it's, it causes really real harm. I see the one here in this town might be losing its strength or grip on the people a little bit more now. But does, does that help at all? Did that answer any of the questions about some of the things they did in specific? I think he's going back on mute, Bob. Uh, oh, okay. Well, yeah, that was great. Thank you very much. You bet. I'll tell you what, it just pains my heart to watch it. It really does because of the way I was accepted into AA and, the, and the, all the love and treatment I was given that these people are brought in there and they're, they're taught fear. I mean, they're just seized hold of, and it's a, it's a terrible thing. So we definitely don't do that at our home group. We, uh, we reach out and help them, but if they want to, they get to do whatever they want to do. Um, the prevention for that sort of behavior is decided and specific sponsorship and study of the tradition. Yeah, well, there's another thing is, is the traditions themselves. Um, I, I know people from those groups, and I've done service work with them at the area and at district and, and all over, and and sometimes their definition of how their traditions are, they have really been um, perverted as to what their true meaning is, uh, not what, not the way they're laid out in our in our uh, big book and in the twelve and twelve and in AA comes of age. It, they they have really perverted what it means, what those traditions mean, and they they give them a totally different meaning. And I used to be in conversations with them. Uh, at the area and, and other places, and then they would always they would just stop talking when they couldn't defend themselves anymore. And then the last time it came up is that 
Well, our perception of the tradition is, and then they that's what they go with. And as Bill said, everybody has the right to be wrong. So that's what we, I get to watch. Probably one of the most painful things I, I witnessed was, I may have told you guys about this, was a little gal that I was uh, coming to the Alternatives High School where I was holding a meeting every Thursday for eight years. And she was just a nice little gal, and she was having troubles. She was living in a in a housing area that the tumbleweeds program supplied for her. And she was feeling really horrid one night and wanted to go back out and drink and use. And she was standing outside this apartment house that she lived in, and right across the street was one of these groups. And I knew a gal that went there, and I asked her, I said, why didn't you go over there and see uh, this gal? And uh, she says, well, I wanted to go over there, but when I looked across the street, I realized that it was Wednesday night, and I didn't have any clothes good enough to go over there. There is what that can create. If she knew it was dress-up night on Wednesday night, and that she didn't have good enough clothes to attend that meeting and get the help she needed. And I'll tell you what, about broke my heart when she told me that. And, uh, of course, I wanted to go do battle with them, and I had to pray and pray and pray not to. Um, one of the people that was there with me was a gal from that group, and I could see how much it hurt her, too. But she was so indoctrinated that she had to go along with what the group said. And to think that people couldn't go to a meeting because they didn't have good enough clothes just paying me. We just kind of like it when they wear some. <laughs> that seems to help out our group quite a bit. But these are just things that, in, you know, in this tradition age, is staying out of the professionalism and, and not becoming, you know, um, so rigid and so fast that, that people can't um, can't come in there and, and learn how to live. And this, this tradition, I think, really helps that because... We're just alcoholics helping alcoholics. We're not professional people. We don't set new standards. All the standards are laid out in the big book. All the standards for living, and it says here's how you do it, and here's how what can work for you, and try this, and and that's what we do. We don't get into this indoctrination and professional type um, uh, dictatorships. Um, so a lot of it. it you know, it gets, just gets down to common sense once you get into AA, but the, the, the sad part is, is that new people and professional people out there, and, and especially people who aren't alcoholics, they hear what we say or see what we do, and they interpret that as AA, no matter who's doing it. And that's one of the things we have to really watch, because I've often said that uh, alcoholism is kind of like having babies. You know, women who've had babies know exactly what it is to have a baby. Women who haven't had a baby don't know what it's like. Guys don't know what it's like. Alcoholism is the same way. You won't understand alcoholism unless you unless you are one. The same would be for sexaholics and for Al-Anons and and uh, OAs and GAs and all the other people with these terrible maladies. You've got to be one to understand it. The most we can do, the most that I can do, is have compassion for, for other fellowships and, and maladies that I don't understand. I'm sure from reading that I get to see a lot more of it, and I have a maybe a better conception because I can compare it to my alcoholism. But that's where we have to be so careful is how we reach out 
to these people and and converse with them and tell them about our fellowships and how we might help people that they run into this is where it all boils down is we're not professionals we don't even we don't even want to try to sound like professionals you know we can clean up our language and we can go there and talk to them and they'll understand they'll they can see that we're earnest about it and they'll know that we want to help and we're not trying to steal uh clients from them Okay. Any other questions? I'm running a little bit down right now. Man, I am one kind of beat today. My head feels like it's about to pop. Well, I think we've had a good good discussion, and and uh, um, uh, I think. Uh, I'm 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 grateful for your willingness to get, get with us today. Well, if there's any questions, I love questions because I, you know, because boy, I tell you, one thing I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me: instead of having such a steel door on my mind, so it's so closed that nothing else can get in. When other people ask questions, I see things from their point of view and not just mine, and it really helps me. I love question and answers and ask it baskets and stuff like that anytime because that really that makes me look at it from a different angle and uh, it expands my view of these traditions and about AA and about anything really. I have a question, Bob. Yeah. Um, like it or not, around my rooms in SA in Nashville, somebody's but I hear somebody share in a meeting, it will oftentimes be from the point of view as from what they learned in therapy and group and counseling. And uh, less often than what I hear what I learned from working the steps with my sponsor or taking a sponsee through the steps. And what I see happen over and over with these sexaholics if they don't have access to the same results that I get working the steps out of the big book. And there are a couple of uh, professional people here in particular that, that get some renown for um, uh, working with sexaholics. And uh, some of their patients, you know, mention their, their therapists by name in private conversations, sometimes in meetings. And I just get this, this sense that they are seeking recovery to be and attending SA meetings as part of a group therapy sort of extension of that. Um, I saw a fellow pick up a two-year check a couple of months ago, and everybody said, how'd you do it? And he said, therapy. And my heart just yeah. kind of sank, you know? And I wonder if one of these fellows comes my way, because they're starting to a little bit, who are leaning very, very heavily on their professional um, therapists and counselors or whatnot and not leaning on the solution that is put out in the big book. Um, if this, I could point at this tradition. See, see, this is where we say that we're, there are, are the spiritual aspect of one sex all talking to another cannot be paid for. What you can get from a therapist is therapy, but it is not a spiritual solution that is the 12 steps. It would be fair to point at this tradition in that light. Really, a lot of the traditions would, you know, cooperation but not affiliation, um, because we have the same thing here. Um, in, in AA, we have it. 
there's a there's a, a place down well there's one on the west end of Montana one on the east end of Montana and they're they're called the watch program and you have and as an alcoholic you have to have at least four DUIs to get in you know that's that's felony in Montana you got to have four of them to be felony and that's what and then instead of sending you to prison they can send you to this watch program where they teach uh, all kinds of therapy and living habits and living skills and all kinds of stuff. And they have what's called AA meetings in there, but by and large, they're not chaired by AA members. Mostly people come out of there thinking that they've got this AA program. And and I've watched this. I've watched this several times, and I've watched people die from it because they are so ingrained in their head that this is their answer and that they just attend AA, you know, to uh, to give them a little boost here and there. And it takes a long time. They almost have to have a, um, you know, when we finally hit bottom, when you finally get to step zero before you can reach step one, they almost have to do that all over again to get into the program. And I've watched this time and time again. I watched one guy that I worked with. He finally just overdosed and committed suicide. But we have a gal in our group who finally crashed, and now she's in AA. But I find that a lot of times these places make it very difficult for somebody to accept the program that they're attending, like SA or AA, because they've been so indoctrinated by what they've learned there, and they and they learn all about their triggers and and all of these things and living skills and how to set their boundaries. And and I don't know about you guys, but I didn't know what a boundary was except one between the United States and Canada or Mexico. You know, I didn't. I didn't know anything, and AA is where I learned all of this. But what I try to explain to them is that, you know, counseling and the stuff that you went through has helped you to get a, or given you some time sober and is helping you to take a look at your life. But here is the answer for this problem. This is worldwide. And let's go through these steps and get, get the basic understanding of our fellowship. I try to do it in a, in a friendly, um, manner to where I'm inviting them rather than getting after them. But I, I tell you what, it pains me to watch it. I can hear it. And when they start talking, I can hear it just plain as day. And they've got this, they've got this wall up, this block where they don't really need AA. They just go to it because they, they're told to. And up here, um, this is something that happened nationwide. There was a fellow out of California that filed suit against the prison for being sentenced to go to AA in the prison. And he was fighting this battle for a long time, and he died before he died before the, 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 it was settled. But his son carried it on through. And um, because they were saying the, the judge finally declared that you couldn't sentence them to AA in these prisons because in the book, when he read the book, he said AA was a religion because of the mention of God and the use of the word God so much. And so it hasn't gone with the Supreme Court, but a lot of district courts around the United States have declared the same thing. So now judges cannot sentence them to go to AA. However, you have parole officers that can make them so miserable because they don't go to them that they go there anyway. But that's really cut down on the number of slips being signed. But that's just something that's happened here in the last, oh, four or five years that has really made a change in that. And, and a lot of, as a matter of fact, uh, the watch program down east here, it was 
two years ago when that came through, and all of a sudden they didn't have to go to AA meetings, and the number of people at the AA meetings dropped off to almost nothing. And then about three months later, it started building back up, and they started coming in voluntarily, which really helped the attitude in there. But that's some of the things that are going on. But all I can say is, for myself, when I see that, I feel terrible for them, and I really try to reach out to them to help invite them into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm sure it's the same way with SA. And you can hear it. You can hear it within just a few minutes of their talking when you know that they've got that line of thinking that is so deadly. Does that help at all? It does. After the meeting in the parking lot, what do you personally um, say to somebody if you find yourself standing next to them? You know, I just start a conversation with them. I say, you know, you know, where did you get, uh, where did you first started getting sober? And, and, uh, then, you know, I bring up some of the stuff about the program and, you know, especially about me, you know, what happened to me and how I got in here and, and, uh, and pop about the old timers, how they helped me and what I, what I did. And, and, and that I talk about the steps and the traditions and sometimes they just don't want to hear it. They'll make it very obvious and there's little that I can do. But I do try to make a uh, an offer to them, or or a, you know, I try to reach out to them and and be friendly. And uh, because sometimes it takes two or three times of being around somebody before they'll even start to trust you at all. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do. And I just and and I pray for them. Boy, do I pray for them because of the I watch it, and it, it just pains me to watch it. And I've seen lots of them die because of it. Amen. Yep. It's tough to watch. And then I often wonder how in the heck a guy like me ever made it. <laughs> you know. But I'm, I have an answer to this problem. This Jim works his steps, all twelve of them. That's my answer to that problem. That's that's the answer is 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 doing the steps with somebody. And I definitely needed a, a sponsor, a guide. And, and I tell them, you know, I also tell them that a sponsor isn't isn't like uh, in the NASCAR, Pennzoil or something like that. A sponsor in AA is, it's just like hiring a guide when you get into foreign country. Somebody who knows the path and they show you the path that they were showing. And when they show that to you, then after you learn that path, then you can show it to somebody else. You kind of try to simplify it for them, and and I and I say, well, here's the path, and here's the steps we take to go down that path. And I just try to make it inviting to them, but uh, sometimes, boy, they're hard headed, and they've been, you know, how we can be. <laughs> yeah, hi, this is Barnes, Barnes M. I'm a sexaholic. I got in a little late. We had a, a literature committee call. Actually, we were talking about the 12 traditions on it, but I wanted to get on this call, and I got on maybe 15 minutes ago. I really appreciate the, this call a lot. I'm sorry it clashes with the other one. And I uh, heard a lot of good things. I just want to let it know that, that I'm, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> And hi to everybody. I heard Steve and I heard, uh, of course, Bob. And, 
interesting. I just say real brief the comment on people talking about therapy and attributing their success or lack of it to therapy or whatever, you know. We get a lot of that. Um, Roy wrote a very interesting, he made a very interesting observation once. He said that AA grew from the inside out. It grew by retail, you know, one-on-one. And he said, the problem with SA, a lot of it is that SA started to grow by the outside in, from the outside in. In other words, referral from therapists and, and so on. And um, that's definitely a fair observation and something that uh, we got to bear in mind when we talk about implementing the traditions. I really appreciate that observation, and I think one of the areas that I that I found being an AA and, and doing a lot of service work in AA, one of the very, very important areas was the public information uh, area, and we also have um, a committee called the Cooperation with the Professional Community, and those committees, they can go and talk with people, and they'll have, they'll have like a... a Kind of a potluck or a small, a small dinner. We don't spend a lot of money on it, but we invite like all the therapists or sometimes we'll invite all the judges and lawyers or like policemen or clergy. And we talk to these professional people and we talk to them on a level, you know, very uh, professional. Uh, we're, we're, uh, you have to have some, uh, diplomacy when you're talking to them because believe it or not, there are some egos on their side of the fence too. We uh, working with them and making uh, opening up a line of, of conversation uh, really really has helped a lot in our areas uh, by letting them know that we're available and and we and we put forth we have a couple of people tell a story you know part of their story and then we'll uh, discuss our fellowship and what it does and how we help people and lay it right out for them and this has really cleared up a lot of. Uh, animosity and uh, misunderstanding as to what the fellowship really does. And it's a, it's a very important part, I think, because of the professionals that do can refer them if we have a good uh, dialogue with them. Right, right. We also try to make sure that when we're working with professionals or in a facility, such as a psych ward or a, in a hospital or any place we're taking meetings, we make sure that they have one they have one or two phone numbers that they can call if they have a problem. And then we like to have one or two numbers that we can call if we have a problem. And that has cleared up a lot of stuff for us, too. Rather than having each group that lives in that town trying to contact them, we do it as a district, as a as a group, and we, they just only have to worry about this one or two phone numbers, and they can contact these people, and we let them get to know them, and uh, that has cleared up a lot of stuff, too, because a lot of times they don't know who to call when they have a, a complaint or a problem, and sometimes it works for us, too. We found that to be very useful. 
anybody else. I'm very glad you came on. Thanks, Bob. I'm really glad to be here. I'm sorry you're not feeling well, but you sound like you're firing on all pistons, and it's good to hear you. Oh, man, my head is so stuffed up. Uh, unbelievable. It just started last night, so I just think that, hey, I got good weather to get through it, and, and yeah. all I got is some good hard work to sweat, and, and I don't have any major major things going on right now, so this is a perfect time for me to have a cold. <laughs> Good. I hope you feel better soon. Oh, me too. <clears throat> Any other questions or comments? Shall we close with the prayer if there's no more questions? Okay, I'd, I'd really like sure. to thank you guys for all allowing me to be here. Uh, about this stuff. Sometimes I even get to gripe a little bit. <laughs> you know, I like having that opportunity. But I thank you so much, and um, I wish you all the very best. And we'll, we'll close with a prayer, but uh, this is a very special day, too. Uh, I know a lot of us watching what happened 10 years ago. And uh, my prayers, I know that my prayers go out to the people who suffered so much in the families. Amen. Okay, Steve, you want to lead us out? Well, okay. Uh, along those lines, Bob, let's have a kind of a, an extended moment of silence to use as, as you wish, and, and perhaps in the manner that Bob has suggested, um, followed by uh, the Serenity Prayer. Okay. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I will, not mine. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Amen. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Thanks, Thank you. And thanks, Tim. Thanks, Ed. You bet. Thanks, Ed. Thank everybody. Good night, John Boy. Good night, John Boy. Great. Bye bye. Okay, love you guys. Bye. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Mm-hmm.